Well, good morning, Hillcrest. It's uh, good to see you guys. Always such an honor uh, to open up God's Word with you guys together. Let me first uh, begin by saying good morning to you guys that are watching online. Uh, we're thankful for you and also for our church family over at Spanish Trail. Uh, good morning to you guys as well. I had the privilege of being at Spanish Trail uh, last week, man, and uh, just what a sweet, sweet family of Christ that is. Just uh, really encouraging to be over there. Just love them. A lot. We're grateful that Pastor Jim made it back safely from his uh, mission trip to Spain over the past 10 days. And thank you guys so much for praying over him and praying over that trip um, as uh, God did some great things there in Spain. This past week, uh, two random things happened as I was preparing this message. The first is I'm sitting there uh, in my office and I open up my Bible and a $20 bill just falls out into my lap. Right? I was like, okay, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I'm good with that. And then Thursday night, I'm laying in the bed. I've got my laptop open. I'm just kind of reviewing the notes or whatever. In April, my wife is sound asleep sitting next to me. And as I was sitting there out of dead sleep, she rolls over and she starts petting me like I was her little puppy. And she says these words. She says, uh, I'm so proud of you, you're gonna do great. And I know this because Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> and then she's like, oh. falls right back asleep, right? And I'm asking her about it the next morning and she has no recollection of it at all, right? Now, I don't know what those two things have to do with this message, but I'm curious to find out together this morning. Um, but it was random preparation stuff that was happening this, this week, it was uh, pretty funny. Speaking of messages, man, uh, last Sunday we had the privilege of hosting Brian Nall, who serves as the executive director of the Pensacola Bay Baptist Association. He gave us a great, great challenge from Acts chapter 14 last week on the extreme effects of living scent. This morning, as we continue on our journey in this scent series, I want us to piggyback off of last week and look at the extreme effects of living focused. We're gonna be in Acts chapter 15, so you can go ahead and be making your way there. This past August, three days before, or right after school started, my oldest son, Hollis, woke up on a Sunday morning and he walks into our bedroom and he says, I think I need to go to the doctor, uh, to the eye doctor, because I am seeing double. And of course, mom and dad, we immediately like, okay, maybe you're just tired or whatever. And he says, no, I'm literally seeing two of everything. And so we quickly went to thinking something, you know, maybe you just, you know, slept on your face wrong or something to, man, there's something significantly wrong here. So Monday morning, we go to the eye doctor and he finds nothing wrong and quickly refers us to a pediatric ophthalmologist and they diagnose Hollis with acute onset strabismus. And essentially what happens is Hollis had a small head cold about two weeks prior to this incident happening. Nothing major, just, you know, just some allergy type thing. But what had happened is that virus, as it was leaving his body, attached itself to the nerves behind his eye. And it caused him to see double of everything. Seemingly something so small, yet made a huge impact. 
And as we dive into our text this morning, we are coming to the end of Paul's first missionary journey. He has arrived back to, the, to their starting point of Antioch of Syria. And we see at the end of Acts 14, we are told that Paul and Barnabas had gathered to the church together and there's a big celebration going on and they are celebrating all that God had done through them on this missionary journey and how uh, God had even opened the door of faith to the Gentiles as well. And then in Acts 15, 1, we read these words. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea came and they arrived and began to teach the believers Unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, a, a lot of the first Christians were, were Jews, and these Jews had been raised on Old Testament law, and one of the most important Jewish laws was that every male had to be circumcised. Right? It was a God-given sign to separate the people of God uh, from the world. So a lot of these new, uh, these Jewish Christians were saying, hey, if you are really going to be a child of God, then you have to be circumcised. Now, what this meant was that the new members class in the early church primarily consisted of women and children, right? The, the women all went to discover Hillcrest and the guys were out in the car saying, you know, honey, you go ahead, I'm not sure about all of this, right? That's a joke that you will get on the way home, okay? It's a pretty solid one too, okay? Verse two. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. Now, keep in mind that this is, was a ridiculously long trip for Paul and Barnabas. This was approximately going to be about a 300-mile uh, trip back to Jerusalem. And it's right on the heels of a, uh, of a celebration of the success of his first missionary journey. Nonetheless, he was willing to go all the way back to Jerusalem and thus begins what is now referred to uh, in church history as the Jerusalem Council. So let's read a little bit about what happens here. Verse 6. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. And at the meeting... After a long discussion, Peter stood and he addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's heart and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them. For he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? There were 613 Jewish laws. Circumcision was just one. That left 612 other laws. And Peter was like, listen, I don't know about you guys, but I never felt like I was keeping them all, and I was born a Jew. And if we can barely keep these laws, then why would we project that onto the Gentiles? And so let's continue reading. Verse 11. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly 
as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finish speaking, James steps forward with a final resolution that is summarized in verse 19. And it says this, And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Church, I would like to suggest to you this morning that we engrave that phrase onto the walls of our hearts. That we should not make it difficult for those who are turning to Christ. A matter of fact, I want to help us with this engraving process. So for the rest of our time together this morning, whenever I say the phrase, we should not make it difficult, I want you to reply for those who are turning to Christ. You guys ready? We're going to practice this right now. Online, even if you're like watching by yourself, I want you to do this. And make sure that over at Spanish Trail that Pastor Stan is the loudest in all of this, okay? Here we go. We should not make it difficult. Very good. Because listen, any obstacle that we can eliminate, I think that we should. Even preferences for things that I really like, right? Things that I am really comfortable with. Right? I, I think about it in my preaching, right? Regardless of my audience, whether uh, I am preaching to teenagers or if I'm preaching to adults, whenever I have that privilege, like I think about it through these lens, right? I don't want to make it difficult for people unfamiliar with Christianity to turn to God because I use a bunch of terms that they don't understand. Nor do I want to make it difficult by presenting this, this artificial facade of righteousness that people feel like they have to live up to in order to be included in Christianity. Right? I don't want to make it difficult for people turning to God because I speak condescendingly about people on the outside, which turn them off to begin with. Why? Because we should not make it difficult. I don't want to make it difficult for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction who are turning to God by stigmatizing that sin or treating it as any different than my own sin, right? I don't want to make it difficult for Republicans or Democrats by mixing secondary political positions with the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't want to make it difficult for FSU fans by rubbing it in their face that my Crimson Tide wore them out in football this past year. Right? Listen, Gator fans, you're not off the hook. I don't want to rub it in your face that you guys haven't been relevant since Tebow, right? Listen. In all seriousness, listen, we have a message that is life or death. We have a message that is either life or death, and no secondary message, no matter how important, should get in our way. Why? Because we should not make it difficult. James finishes his resolution in verse 20 and 21 where he says, Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Listen, in these verses, James is asking for an obedience to two commands and a, willing, a willingness to agree to two personal concessions, right? These, 
two commands were that believers were to uh, abstain or avoid idolatry and immorality. Sins that regardless of your background have always been and will always be wrong in God's sight. The other two concessions were that the Gentiles would abstain from eating blood and meat from animals that had died by strangulation. And so the question begs, well, well, why are these listed? Well, keep in mind that the early church did a great deal of eating together and practicing hospitality. And if the Gentile believers ate food that the Jewish believers considered unclean, this would cause division, right? This would break fellowship. And this is why James is reminding everyone of the law from which the Jews had been raised. He is basically saying, hey, don't make it difficult for your fellow Christians. They have cultural sensitivities. Be gracious toward them. Listen, this is what we call love, church. This is pure, holy love. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, love. In our determination to adhere tightly to God's plan, we must ask what or who is the object of our affection? Is that object selfish selfish pride or self-righteousness, like a moral goodness that we can claim for the world to recognize? You know, if we can clearly identify the answer as Christ then we are more concerned with the love of the Lord and those that he loves, and we are less concerned with living laws for the Lord. And why? Because we should not make it difficult. As I mentioned earlier, when we took Hollis to the eye doctor, we were immediately referred to a pediatric ophthalmologist who diagnosed Hollis, and he came up with a solution to put Hollis in a pair of glasses uh, that had a prism sticker covering one eye. And this prism sticker, it stuck over the lens, and, and he wore glasses, right? And the sticker would train the eye to take what had been distorted to focusing on the object in view. Essentially, it retrained the eye to do the job that it was originally intended. It was a really interesting, uh, really interesting, like when you tried to look through the prism, like you just, you know, you couldn't see anything, but when he looked through it, it channeled everything back to seeing a singular object, right? What this text reminds us of today is that sometimes the Christian's focus becomes distorted, and our focus needs to be shifted or retrained in order to do the job that we were originally intended to do. At some point, every church and every Christian face these shifts. So if you have your worship guide, there's a little handout there. Uh, in there, you can follow along. You make some notes. So I've got three distorted shifts I want to share with you real quick. Distorted shift number one, and that's the shift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. Most Christians... And, and consequently, most churches tend to do this at some point, right? We, we tend to, we, we come to Christ and we are fired up and we want to tell everybody uh, that, and, and we just want to go reach the world, right? 
And, and, and then we sort of get established in the church and we realize that, hey, we have needs as well, right? And so then we fall into one of the easiest traps in church where we start thinking about ourselves. And once we fall into that trap, we begin to put on the lens of what does church have for me? What can the church do for me? And instantly our shift focuses from reaching outsiders to pacifying insiders. When, when I was in seminary, uh, one of my professors uh, asked me to go preach one Sunday morning uh, to this, this small little country church right outside on the outskirts of Wake Forest, North Carolina. And uh, we, we go in, and April and I walk in. This was even before uh, we, had, we had kids. Like We walk in, and clearly we are the youngest people at this church, right? Um, it was, it, anyway, so we walk in, and uh, we, we go through the deal, and I get up to preach, right? So I open up the Bible, open up my notes, I'm getting ready to go. And th- this church um, had one of these, uh, I don't even know what they're called, one of the tables in the front says, in remembrance of me, you know what I'm talking about? It has one of those tables out front, and it's got a different floral arrangement on it every Sunday morning. And I did not know, but the pastor is supposed to identify or address the flowers, So me, never walked in this church before a day in my life. I'm standing there, and I'm getting ready to preach, and someone, no joke, from the back of the church is like, Preacher, you going to talk about the flowers? (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Didn't even notice them, right? I'm a dude, right? And so I was like, uh, and so somebody else, no joke, somebody else says, Oh, and I'm making up these names because I tried to block this, but... uh, they say, no, that's, that's for, the, that's for the, the birth of uh, Jeremy and Brianna's baby. I don't know, I made those names up. You're welcome, right? That's the birth of a baby. We're celebrating that. And this person over here says, no, 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 that's in memory of my grandmother, right? And then this person says, no, that was last week. And so we start having this, and I'm like, I mean, I'm good. Like, y'all ready to go? Like, I don't, I don't know what's happening, right? Listen, it was... So awkward. They had shifted from reaching outsiders to pacifying insiders. They were stuck in old traditions. And this church that I was speaking at, and unfortunately many other churches, won't change. They won't change. And even though they can see that they're not reaching the next generation for Jesus. But here's the thing that I want all of you guys uh, to understand this morning. Hillcrest is not exempt from this. We have stood at these crossroads in the past. And if the Lord continues to do so, we will stand at these crossroads again in the future. Do me a favor, at both campuses, listen, if you have been at Hillcrest for uh, 20 or more years, will you raise your hand real quick? 20 or more years. Let me tell you something. If you just raised your hand, I want to say thank you to you. Thank you. You see, these individuals that just raised their hand, just like this church in Acts, they stood in the gap at a very defining moment in the life of Hillcrest. Listen to this. Over the past 20 years, Hillcrest has tripled in size. 20 years ago, in 1997, the average weekly attendance at Hillcrest was 700 people. We are currently averaging about 2,200 people at between both campuses and online. 
And listen, at any time there is that much growth in a church, the methods of reaching people for Jesus start to look different than they have in the past. And these people that raised their hand, along with, with many others, they said, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. They chose to advance the mission rather than preserve the tradition. And listen, they didn't do it so that we can be selfish now. The church in Acts made sure to focus on the mission, not preferences. And we must continue to do this. Another distorted shift that, we, that this text warns us about is this, the shift from grace to law. The shift from grace to law. In our text, the ones calling out for circumcision were saved, right? They believed they were saved by putting faith in Christ. But after that, they started to drift back towards a rules-based relationship with God. I mean, that, that, that's what always happens, right? We constantly drift from grace to law. Martin Luther once said, the human heart is hardwired for works righteousness. Works righteousness means this idea that it's what you do and how you do it determines how God feels about you. Now, our laws are just different than this first church, right? I would guess that circumcision is probably not a big deal to you, but we have our own set of lists where we say, you know, hey, if you do these things, it will make you right with God and show that you are a good Christian, right? And, and they're never bad things, right? Are, are you involved in a ministry? Are you, uh, are, are you doing your quiet time? Are you involved in a connect group? How many people did you share Jesus with? You know, do you have a perfect family? How much do you give? Do you eat at Chick-fil-A at least three times a week, right? <laughs> These are good things. But many times they become the measure of our spiritual lives and the measure by which we evaluate others. And not only does this make us lose the gospel in our own lives, it makes it difficult for others to come to God because they start seeing a type of profile that they have to fit before God will accept them. And listen, make no mistake, the gospel is that you are purified the moment you put faith in Christ. Not faith in what you are able to do, but on what he's already done. That is why when Jesus hung on the cross, his last words were, it is finished, not go fix yourself. That means that any moment you can be fully right with God, no matter how lost you feel. It is as finished for you, my friend, as it is for anyone. And that is important. Why? Because we should not make it difficult Finally, the, the last distorted shift this text warns us about is this. The shift from a focus on internals to one on externals. The gospel's focus is transforming the heart. Jesus said that the essence of the law was to love God and love others. Everything else was an outworking of that. In places that lose the focus of the gospel, they replace a focus on internal transformation with an emphasis on outward conformity. And when that happens, a whole host of things become laws that determine whether you are spiritual. In, in their day, it was circumcision, right? 
In our day, it looks a little different, but it's still there. Let, let, me, let me just give you a few examples that I have seen in, in churches over the years. One, one is personal appearance, right? Personal appearance is one, one, of, one of ours, right? Some of you grew up in churches where uh, the, the way that Christ, Christians dressed in a certain way uh, when they came to church. That, that was what you grew up in. Some of you prefer to dress more formal when you come to church. Some of you want to dress more casual. Both beliefs are fine. Let's just not make them law. Vocabulary. That's another one, right? Christians, we tend to have a certain way that we talk, right? And, and that's great. You might not choose to use profanity. But we don't need to judge the heart of someone, especially if someone is new to the faith, right? They are coming under new authority in their life, the authority of Jesus. And if their former authority in life had not displayed a conviction regarding their language, chances are this change is going to take a little time for this new believer, right? Preferences, not law. Church rules. This is, this is another one, right? The church uh, is bad about unwritten rules that we expect everyone to follow, right? We, we need to stand up at this time and sit down at this time and be quiet in this area, and you can talk here, and don't take, take drinks here, and, you know, heaven forbid a child run in the hallway, right? Listen, none of these things are bad, but we have to remember to view things from the standpoint of someone who has never entered these doors, and we need to make them feel welcome, not hold them to a standard of unwritten rules that they don't know. The, the very first church that uh, April and I had the privilege of serving at Morganton, North Carolina. I was doing student ministry there. Hollis was real young. Merrick, we had just brought Merrick home um, from Ethiopia. And so it was a sweet, sweet time of ministry where we had a children's worship just like we have uh, over uh, at, at both campuses um, on Sunday mornings. We, have one, we had one for student, or children, I should say. And uh, it was down in the basement uh, of the building, which is clearly where you have the kids, right? Um, but we're in the basement and I'm standing on this stage, right? And the stage was kind of this way. And to my left was the door to the room. And I could see all the way up this long hallway. And the hallway went up to, uh, you know, five or six stairs that went to the, uh, eventually led to the worship center. So I'm in there teaching a lesson one Sunday. And, and in my vision, I see a child that's supposed to be in the nursery is standing at the top of those stairs with their pants around their ankles, and they are screaming out, I need someone to wipe my bottom, right? So I'm, I got this group of kids in front of me. We're doing the Bible lesson. And so I'm like, what? I can't leave you guys or whatever. And so I, my intern was in there. I said, hey, can you kind of go see what's going on? And so she walks up halfway up the hallway and turns around with this, horror, this horrified view. And at that moment, we both realized that wasn't a random kid. That was my kid. Right? I'm not going to tell you which one because I don't want to embarrass them, right? But I was like, mm, okay, <laughs> that's a church rule we probably need to adhere to, right? We, we don't want to go down that road, right? But church rules, man, that can be a stumbling block from someone who is, is, is new to the faith. Politics, that's another one, right? I think that the Bible needs to shape how we think about everything. 
We need to learn to think biblically about everything. But for a lot of people, political positions become like religious law, an external sign of whether you are right with God or not. And maybe you are right about those things. But listen, we don't need to make it hard for those coming to Christ and make this secondary thing a gateway to get to the first thing. Let's, let's have those discussions, but let's have them in the right way and never make them the main thing, which is the gospel. Amen. You know, Jesus gives us a really beautiful example of this in the group of disciples. You know, Jesus had 12 disciples. Two of those individuals in his group of 12, one was Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was someone who uh, believed that Israel should succeed from Rome and do whatever it took to get away from them, right? Another one is Matthew the tax collector. Matthew the tax collector, he actually took up taxes for Rome. And so in this group of 12, you had essentially a Tea Party conservative and a big government liberal in the same group of disciples. And somehow Jesus brought them both together. And I am sure that there were some great conversations they had around campfires. But listen, the point is this. The main thing remained the main thing. And so people of wildly different political positions could come together and find the gospel in the same place. And listen, the point is this. We must be careful to not make personal preferences into new laws. Remember that you didn't just arrive where you are with your walk with Jesus. It's a process. It's called sanctification, which is a long word that means being made holy. And for followers of Christ, we must always remember that grace is greater than law. And why is that? Because we shouldn't make it difficult for those who are turning to Christ. And Acts 15 shows us a very important moment in church history. A moment of incredible but subtle danger that could have ended the rapid expanse Christian movement. Scholars will tell you anywhere you read that still to this day that this council was the most important church council in the history of church history. And they faced some dangers, but instead they came out with a strengthened unity within the church. They came out with a strengthened witness from the church. And they came out with a strengthened faith for the church. You see, as we will begin to see in the next few weeks of this series, the decisions made in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council will be communicated greatly on Paul's second missionary journey. And we are actually told in Acts 16.5 that as a result of these, this resolution, right, that, that the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew larger every day. Grace is greater than law every time. Every time. My, my Hollis had to wear his prism glasses for about six weeks. And then one morning he woke up and was literally healed. The doctor told us that that probably would, would be the case, that the virus would eventually detach and it would just go back to normal, and he did. Went to sleep one night, woke up the next morning, bam, completely healed. And over the past school year, we've had multiple uh, follow-up visits just to check up, see how things are going, and about two months ago, we were released for good. 
And Hollis uh, made a video and sent to our family uh, with his glasses off. And he said this in the video. He says, I'm glasses free. God healed me. Listen. Absolutely. Let's be a people who live with crystal clear, focused attention on our reality that God has graciously given healing to each of us through Jesus. And may we not do anything to make it difficult for those who are turning to Christ.